Because if I would have said yet, I wouldn't start clapping. Hey. Great. <laughs> well, good morning. It's so good to see you. So good to be with you. My name's Nathaniel. I'm one of the leaders here. So if you don't know me, I hope you soon will. Uh, over the summer, we're spending some time looking at Acts 2. And something that we've done over the last couple of summers, actually, is to speak from one particular verse, Sunday after Sunday, drawing out something different. Last week, Matthew Painter started us off by looking at Acts 2.42, setting the scene for what it means to be a devoted people. And that's what this four-week summer preaching series is called, Devoted. And uh, Matt was talking about what we're to devote ourselves to. As a reminder for you, Acts 2 verse 42 says, they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And this week we're going to look at another thing that the Christians in Acts were devoted to, and that is the breaking of bread or communion. Now in this church, communion is something that we do often. We do it weekly as a part of our church service, which is great, but sometimes over-familiarity is a bad thing as we get a bit set in our ways and miss the impact and the meaning of our actions. So it's my prayer that this morning as we look at communion, it's a chance for us to re-engage, to really understand why we're doing it and what we're doing. We're going to look at the biblical instruction for communion and why it still matters to the church in 2019. First things first, I need some volunteers to come and join me for a meal. Abo's up, good man. He's straight in, Hannah, come on, come and join me. We're going to sit and we're going to have our meal. Here's Abbo. Now I've set up a meal for us this morning because what we're going to look, look at is, is communion, the first communion. I've set a meal as a way of helping us to visualize the first communion that Jesus instructed his disciples, which was recorded in the Bible for us in Matthew and Mark and Luke. So guys, tuck in. some. Now I must say, when I was, uh, in, when I was in, there you go, it's for you. When I was in Tesco this morning, they ran out of bitter herbs and lamb, and so I'm afraid we're going to have to make do with like olives and uh, you know, whatever I could find. Anyway, tuck in. Mm. Great. So the meal commences. Start eating. I know it's a bit forced, but you know, go with me on it. Well, we start eating, and this is the way it was. You know, Jesus was sat down reclining. It was a meal together. Abba, how's work this week? All right? It wasn't too bad. Yeah. Nice. Kids, Hannah, all right? Oh, wow. Wow. Where do we start? So this is what we're doing. Meals were important throughout the Bible. People came together and they ate. And here in Acts, we get the sense that as Christians, eating together was a really important part of their lives. A little later on in Acts 2, it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Oh, thank you. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Are you, yes. you glad and sincere? Yes. Yeah, sometimes. We're glad and sincere, <laughs> see? Mm. This is going incredibly well. So, the believers are together. They're giving to each other as they have need. We're eating together. And this is how the early church, oh, thank you. This is how the early church lived their lives, and this is how the church grew, grew, through being together, through being in one another's homes, and through eating together. And we're eating the same way that Jesus was eating with his disciples during the Last Supper. And in that meal, as they were eating, Jesus takes the bread, and he gets up, and he says, and Matthew 26 and Luke 22 will come up on the screen behind me so you can see. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Luke 22 says, 
he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take communion, we take some bread to signify Jesus' body broken on the cross, given to us. And then Jesus continues. Matthew 26 says he took the cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 22 says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So we drink the wine signifying Jesus' blood, which was poured out for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. What we're talking about here is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on our behalf where Jesus gave his life as a substitute for ours. And it's hard to overestimate the significance of this. When Jesus took the bread and he took the wine as he was meeting with his friends, eating together, sharing life together, he was talking about his sacrifice, substituting himself for us, taking the punishment that we rightly deserve for all the times we've sinned and done wrong against God. The full wrath of God poured out for his son, on his son, so that we can go free. This is the gospel in action right here. The creator of the universe loves you so much that he made a way for you to be with him forever. And that's when we're taking communion, we're able to say, Jesus loved the both of you so much that he made a way for you to be with him forever. Amen? Amen. 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 Feel free to take your plates and go and sit down. You can, for being volunteers, you can continue munching whilst I eat. Good man, he's loaded up. Well done, Abbo. He's making full use of it. Well, you did now. You see, Jesus called himself the bread of life, a sign to us that we're dependent on Jesus. Just as humans can't survive without food, you can't survive as a Christian without Jesus. Christians without Christ are nothing. So we take communion to bring us to the bread of life and as a reminder that we're nothing without him, without his life-altering sacrifice for us. It's like a prisoner having a life sentence ripped up before his eyes, being told that he's totally free. Do you live your life like you've been set free from an eternity-long sentence? How do you take communion? When we come week after week to the communion table, do you do it automatically, out of habit, join the queue and get to the front and take the bread and take the wine and come and sit down? Or do you let the truth of what Jesus has done for you really, truly sink in? You see... Stories of sacrifice are quite commonplace uh, in our culture. Our movies are absolutely full of them, whether it's Boromir in Lord of the Rings fighting off a horde of orcs so that his hobbit friends could escape, or Obi-Wan Kenobi letting Darth Vader kill him in A New Hope for the greater good, or Bruce Willis's character staying behind to destroy the asteroid and save the Earth by sacrificing himself in the movie Armageddon. There's something about these stories that connect with us. They cause an emotional reaction in us. I decided to go with some older movies rather than like the latest Avengers films, just in case there's anybody that's not seen it yet. So I hope you're all grateful I didn't spoil anything for you there. (laughs) See, there's a a couple of examples there for you. Let me tell you another story. This is from 2015 in France. There's a gunman who turns his gun on a train full of people. And there were three Americans on that train, including a chap called Spencer Stone. On hearing the shots, Spencer's mates turned to him and shouted, Get him! And at that, Spencer ran 32 foot towards the gunman, tackling him and taking him down. Spencer's two mates jumped on top 
and then a British businessman got on top of that just for good measure, and they sat on him until the police arrived. When the police arrived, Spencer got up and immediately began treating the wounds of those who had been injured by this gunman. He'd saved the lives of loads of people as a result of his actions. People would be walking off that train that otherwise might not have been. They got a second chance that day because somebody ran straight into the line of fire on their behalf. Imagine yourself on that train with a gunman bearing down on you, but for the momentary act of an American bloke. With these sorts of stories, we understand the emotion behind it because we can connect with it in some way. We can kind of imagine ourselves on that train, right? You have all seen the movies, and you, know, you can see the emotion behind what the storytelling is supposed to tell you. Substituting one's life for another, we get the gravity of that action. So then, when it comes to communion, why is it so often seen as a repetitive and over-familiar act that church congregations have to put up with week after week? You see, we're in danger of losing the wonder and significance if we don't take communion purposefully. We're taking time to celebrate, to connect with, and be thankful for a life-saving act that has changed the course of our lives. It's changed the course of our eternity, and it personally connects us with our Creator and Father in heaven. We feast on our inheritance that we've received through Jesus. I actually do think feasting is an important part of communion. I don't know if you've noticed, but when I come up to take communion, I take a good chunk when I do it. And I don't just do it because I'm hungry, though normally by 12 o'clock I am getting a bit peckish. I do it because I want to feast on Jesus. And there's something about taking a big chunk in my hand and dipping it in and eating it over a couple of mouthfuls that means that I'm physically feasting. There's something I have to do to feast on my inheritance in Jesus in that moment. So when we come to take communion later, take a big chunk. Go on. Keep you going until lunch, if nothing else. Now, the bulk of the teaching on communion comes from the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth. And it's safe to say the church in Corinth wasn't doing communion particularly well. So grab your Bibles and turn to page 1152, and I'll read it to you. One Corinthians eleven, then, page one thousand one hundred and fifty-two, and it starts in verse seventeen. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. For I've received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 
Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That means died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. We'll stop there. See, Paul felt the need to give a large portion of his first letter to the church in Corinth to underline the importance of communion and doing it right. So thank goodness we're talking about it this morning, eh? One commentator talking about this passage says this, they were treating the bread and wine as mere foodstuffs when they took them at their church meetings. So Paul had to warn them, your meetings do more harm than good. It was a damning indictment which reminded them that the Lord's Supper was far more powerful and and far more deadly than any of them had realized. Such was the abuse and hypocrisy and lack of sanctity with which the church in Corinth was taking communion that in the context of the passage, we can only assume that God was making people sick by way of discipline because they weren't doing it like they were instructed. And now I don't want us to get all worried about taking communion. That's the opposite of my aim, but you can see the high regard that God gives to communion through this passage. The the obvious implication of abusing communion is that it angers God so much so that he chose to discipline people for their lack of respect for a meal that's supposed to bring them closer to God, not lead them further into sin. Some were so far from doing it right that they were being accused of despising the church because of it. While it's important to note that this isn't the norm, it should shake us awake into thinking more about its importance within the church context and why it's so important to do it right and with a sober-minded attitude. So how do we keep ourselves from falling into the same traps? How are we to approach the communion table when we come in a minute? Well, I believe there are four directions we need to look at when it comes to communion that will help us in our understanding of it. So we're going to look backwards, forwards, inwards, and outwards this morning as a way of connecting us to the communion table. First, we'll take backwards. You see, this whole meal is designed to remind us who we are in Christ. This is a meal for believers, those who've accepted what Jesus has done and are glad to remember what it means for their lives. When we take communion, we're to look to the cross, back to the cross, and to Jesus' death and resurrection and understand what it means for us, that our names have been written in the great book, that we're now members of God's family with an internal inheritance waiting for us, not because of anything we could have done to barter or earn our way into God's favor, but because God made a way for us through his free gift. It's important, too, that we understand the context in which communion is to be taken. Depending on your experience of communion in church, you can be forgiven for thinking that communion is a fairly somber affair, that we're all to quietly queue and wait our turn before silently taking some bread and taking a little bit of wine and then shuffling back to our seats. However, a proper understanding of the first communion paints an entirely different picture. Matthew tells us that the last last supper with Jesus took place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or we might know it as Passover. It was a feast where God's people remembered their history, how God had saved them 
out of Egypt through a series of miraculous plagues, culminating in a plague where God struck down the Egyptian firstborns, leaving houses that had been painted in sacrificial lamb's blood alone, a sign that God was with his people and actively working for their rescue. So that's what they did when they came together to feast. They remembered how God had saved them, remembered the promises of God. And it's important that we see the history in taking communion this morning. There was an old covenant between God and his people that saw them remember their rescue into a promised land. Now Jesus was setting out a new covenant. And he even said that, didn't he? He said, this is my covenant. This is my promise. That's what that word means. When he's teaching his disciples to break bread and drink wine, it wasn't lamb's blood, but his blood that would be the ultimate sacrifice to rescue God's people forever. This was a permanent rescue. And now our feast was to include bread and wine in remembrance of this new covenant or this new promise that God had made with us through Jesus that gives us a permanent rescue and a permanent restoration of relationship with our Father in heaven. This meal is a meal of remembrance. And actually, even the Passover meal was supposed to be a meal of remembrance. And during that Passover meal, psalms of thanksgiving were sung. It was a meal supposed to be enjoyed, a moment of reflection and thankfulness of what God had done. It was a joyous occasion. Therefore, there's significance we can draw from the first communion that should give us clues to how we to take communion now. And that's with joy when we come up to the communion table later. It doesn't have to be somber and reflective. It can be full of joy and thanksgiving because of what Jesus has done for us. It's a good way to take communion. Taking communion isn't mourning Jesus' death with all the ambience and solemnity of a funeral. It's celebrating his act of redemption for those who believe in him. We're celebrating that Jesus is raised back to life, defeating sin and death permanently, fulfilling scripture, and breaking sin's death sentence on our lives. Less funeral and more feast. This is a celebration party. Again, that means you need to feast when you come to the table later. Take a good chunk and remember what Jesus has done for you. So when we come to the communion table, we come with joy and thankfulness that Jesus has done it. This sacrament shouldn't be a somber and quiet affair. It should be a chance for us to look backwards to the cross, to understand its implications on our lives and let joy and thankfulness flow from us as a result. So that was backwards. The next place we need to look is forwards. Forwards. Now there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 11 that says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we come to take communion, we don't just look backwards to the cross, but we also look at its implications for us. We can look forward in hope and anticipation of what is to come. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension isn't the end of the story. Because we've got his second coming to come, where he'll gather up all those who believe in him for an eternity in heaven with our Father. So if you call yourself a Christian here, then you've got a glorious hope in which you can, you can give your life over to. You've got a glorious hope to keep you going. If you're in pain this morning, if you see or feel injustice, if you're mourning or sad or dejected, then as a Christian, you have the knowledge that this is not how it's supposed to be. And you can hope in the knowledge that this isn't how it's going to be at the end. This life's momentary in the context of eternity. And as Christians, we look forward to that perfect eternity because of what Jesus has done. This is something we can also actively remember when we take communion. We look back to the cross and we look forward in hope and anticipation 
of a day where we'll be reunited with our Father in heaven forever. 1 Corinthians tells us to do this until he comes, at which point we're all going to be gathered up Christians for the best feast we've ever had. And Revelation talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb and everlasting feast with Jesus in heaven. Now, there's some that might say that this feast is just a metaphorical thing, like, you know, it's just metaphorical language to help us understand what heaven's going to be like. But let me put it this way for you. Emma and I, last weekend, went to a wedding, dropped the kids off with Emma's mum, and the two of us went off. Beautiful service uh, out, in, out in the Purbex. And afterwards, uh, bearing in mind this, you know, we had about a 12 o'clock service, and then we thought, okay, hour-long service, it's nearly time for food. Two or three hours later, we're still waiting for the uh, photographs to get done, and like, I am famished. Do you know what I mean? I am starving. I cannot wait for this wedding reception so that I can get some food in me, looking forward to a feast. Now, imagine those photos being done, 60 or 70 guests gathered on the lawn, absolutely starving hungry, and the best man comes over to you and says, I just want to let you all know so there's no misunderstanding, this is just a metaphorical meal we're going to have next. It's just, it's not actually a real... It's not actually a real wedding breakfast. We're just going to have a metaphorical meal. I hope that's okay with everyone. How disappointed would you be, hey? We're talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb here, the great feast in heaven. Why shouldn't it be the greatest feast and celebration we've ever had? Jesus, after his resurrection, ate food with his disciples on the beach, so we've got precedent. I think it's safe to say that we've got a feast waiting for us in heaven, a table prepared for those God loves. So when we come to the communion table, we come with anticipation and hope. We eat in remembrance of Jesus until we're with him again, feasting with him and on him in heaven. In that sense, communion's our starter. It's our amuse-bouche before the the true feast really begins. So we can look backwards to the cross. We can look forwards in anticipation of a feast, a glorious future eternity in heaven with God. The next direction we're to look is inward. Inward. Back to 1 Corinthians 11. Again, it says there, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. The next place to look when you're taking communion is inside. The warning to the church in Corinth was a personal one as well as a communal one. Communion's a meal of examination. And if we're looking to the cross with thankfulness that Jesus' perfect action has paid for all of our bad ones, then we need to come sober-minded to the table, ready to repent of our sins. A proper understanding of what Jesus has done should cause us to turn from sin completely. And that's what repentance is. Repentance isn't just saying, sorry, oh, sorry about that, shouldn't have done that. Repentance is a 180-degree turn away from sin and towards God. That means... If you're in sin this morning, then you need to repent before you come and take communion. And if you're in sin that you're not ready to repent of, don't take it. That's why sometimes it's appropriate for us as elders to ask somebody not to take communion for a period if we know they're in continued unrepentant sin. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often, but it shows you the seriousness with which we take communion as well as being a moment of joy and thankfulness, it's a a moment to be sober-minded about your own sin. Does your life line up with what the Bible teaches? And if not, why not? What do you need to sort before coming to the table? And should you be coming to the table this morning without it sorted out? That one's not a rhetorical one. I'm actually asking you. When you take communion, 
Are you going to come in full knowledge that actually I'm living my life as Jesus would want? If not, what do you need to repent of before you come? Are you really examining yourself before you're taking this? Each time we take communion, it's time for a personal reflection. Am I living as God would have me live? (coughs) Remember, by the way, we don't have to reach a standard to come to the communion table. Jesus has dealt fully with your sin at the cross. But you need to believe that Jesus made a way for you to stand up to sin and flee from it. See, every year at work, we go through an appraisal process. I don't know if anybody else does the same thing in their job. I always dread it a little bit, to be honest. But it's a chance to sit down and think about the year that I've just had. What have I done well? What have I done badly? I'm uh, in PR myself. And as a man of PR, I always try and look on the good things more than the bad things, you know, try and make myself look good. Oh, well, look at all I've done this year. What are my achievements? Where can I do better? Where can, where can I develop and grow this year? Is there anything I've done wrong that I need to improve on? I'm lucky enough to manage staff members as well, and I do the same with them, and I try and get them to think about the year ahead. Where do you want to be? What's going to help you get there? And as much as I dread that appraisal process coming around, and it is coming around soon, uh, it's a helpful way for us to be able to reflect on our jobs, to take some time out and think, okay, well, what have we done well? Where are we going with this? So when it comes to God, do you take that time to appraise yourself properly? Do you sit and ask the right questions? Am I living for God enough? Where can I improve? What do I need to repent of? Am I reflecting on the good stuff too? Paul was so clear on this one when writing to the church in Corinth, and we need to be too clear as well. Communion is a way for us to connect with God, and it shouldn't be done lightheartedly. God disciplined those in the Corinth church who were flippant about taking communion, and he tells them to be more discerning of themselves to avoid making the same mistakes again. An examination, by the way, doesn't just have to be a bad thing. Like when you go to the doctors, normally you only go to the doctors if you've got bad news. But actually, the older you get, the more you start to realize that sometimes you go to the doctors for a health check, just to make sure that everything's clear and everything's good, everything's well. And sometimes it's good to go to the doctors to be reminded of how healthy we are. Hey, isn't that good? Self-examination at the communion table is also a chance to examine our status as children of God. You don't just have to come and examine the bad stuff. You can come and examine the good stuff too. Reflect on all that Jesus has done for you and what that means for your identity in God. I really want to pause here and let that one sink in. Before we come and take communion, have you examined yourself as you should? So our final communion posture then. We've done backwards, we've done forwards, we've done inwards, and now unsurprisingly, we're doing outwards. Firstly, communion is to be done in community. It's a communal activity. When we're doing it, we should be eating and feasting together. That's why it's powerful to do it in small group contexts, whenever you eat together. And one could arguably place every New Testament breaking of bread within the context of a meal. That's why I set one up for you this morning, to show you it's a good context in which to have a meal when you're being in community together. If you're ever in a group together, if you're having people over for lunch, breaking bread together can be an incredibly powerful thing to do. Be thankful and feast on your inheritance through Jesus as you feast on your relationships with one another and all the great food you've got as well. We're also to do it often. Humans need bread for sustenance. How often do you need to eat to live? I think the general wisdom is what? 
Seven times a day? Yeah, exactly. It's at least once a week, right, for survival? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm no expert, <laughs> as you can see. <laughs> well, how much more do we need to feast on the bread of life? Christians need to be reminded, pointed back to Jesus and what he's done as a way of helping us frame how we live our lives day to day. Therefore, we should be taking communion often, and that's why we do take communion often in this church, because we want to be continually reminded and pointed to Jesus. There's a Bible scholar called Andrew Wilson, and he's somebody whose uh, teaching we draw on quite a lot in this church, and he's written a book called Spirit and Sacrament that argues for churches that should make room for both the Holy Spirit and the regular practice of sacraments, like communion within a church service. And he notes that far too many evangelical churches have relegated communion to an occasional activity, either because it feels too repetitive or it's impractical in larger contexts when you've got churches of thousands all trying to gather, or sometimes because it's too exclusive within the context of a seeker-sensitive service. That is, because this is a meal for believers, it automatically excludes anybody who isn't. But that's exactly why we do take communion together. Taking communion together is a regular reminder that we're calling people to something different. It's a regular opportunity to tell people about Jesus and invite them to partake in the feast too, as long as they're willing to accept Jesus into their lives as well. In his book, Spirit and Sacrament, Andrew Wilson says this, the sacraments then, like communion, are biblically commanded, historically warranted, cross-culturally wise, evangelistically significant, and pastorally helpful. More than that, though, they are God-given ways of sharing in Christ, experiencing the work of the Spirit, drawing close to the Father, and enacting the gospel. As such, celebrating them regularly and making much of them when we do is not just dutiful or useful, but beautiful. Communion is our chance to tell the world about Jesus, to show a connection to him and what he did for us and how seriously we take our faith. It's not dry and dull. It's a celebration of our connection with our Savior. The repetition is a helpful way for us to be continually reminded of Christ's saving work, and we need to work to make sure that it happens often. It's unashamedly exclusive and incredibly powerful. So when you come and take communion in future, I hope this morning's words have given you a fresh understanding and zeal for why we do it. So where do we go in response to this? So how can we be devoted if this preaching series is called Devoted through Communion? Well, the answer, I think, is to be doing it mindfully, being all in with it. Don't let yourself become lethargic with it. Recapture the wonder of it. Why do we do it so often at Gateway? Because it's a reminder, a physical connection to Christ. So when you take the bread in your hand and feel the crumbs between your fingers, when you taste the sharpness of the wine on your tongue, and you've got a moment there that you can be physically reminded and connected to Jesus, to the sacrifice that he made for you. At the communion table, everyone can respond in their own way. If you need to repent, if you need to apologize for something that you've done wrong, then this is the time to do it. If you need to recommit your coming week to living your life in light of Jesus' sacrifice, then this is the moment. 
if you need to come with a thankful heart, with renewed vigor in your relationship with God because of a fresh understanding of Jesus' sacrifice and what it means for you this morning, then come to the table with joy. It's a celebration feast, and we're supposed to feast on Jesus. So, actually, Dan, what I might ask you to do is just come and sing us a song just so that we can take uh, some time to reflect on how we're going to respond and take communion together. And after that, I'm going to invite us to take communion, and I'll come back up and lead us through it. But this song, this time now, is a chance for you to reflect. Is there anything I need to repent of? Do I need to come with more joy? If you're not a Christian here this morning, then this is your chance to take communion for the first time as a believer in Jesus. So as we're singing this song, if you want to know more about that, come and find me. I would love to talk you through it before we take communion together. And if you're in sin that you aren't ready to repent of, not just to say sorry, but to actively turn from it, then this might not be the time to take it. This is a serious meal to be done with a repentant and thankful heart, and you can spend this time getting right with God, turning from sin and taking it next time. So, Dan, let's sing a song, and then I'll come back up and lead us through communion.